Welcome to Brute Facts. Got a great show tonight. This is the show with beard, brains, and beer. You only need one to hang around. We have Dr. Liz Jackson with us tonight. She is uh, has PhD in philosophy from Notre Dame. She is an associate professor at Ryers University and a personal favorite of mine because I love epistemology. And we're going to bring her on uh, as soon as the introduction's over and find out a little bit more about uh, Dr. Jackson. to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Hello, Dr. Jackson. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I am uh, honored that you would come on to such a small show, but we're going to be famous one day and you can say, hey, I was on that show. You absolutely <laughs> will. I love the name too. I don't know if there's, I'm actually curious if there's anything specific that inspired it. It's a really, it's a really fun name. Yes. The Brute Facts uh, Podcast. <laughs> so the years that I've spent in philosophy of religion, uh, you know, arguing the different arguments for God, everything seems to end at root facts with mm. naturalists, atheists, agnostics. And I was like, let's see if that's taken. And it wasn't taken mm. for the website or YouTube. And I was like, hey, how funny would that be if a Christian had a podcast that was root facts? So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I, a catchy name too. So it's really great. Yeah. Well, I've had, yeah, uh, I've had, uh, I had one of my Christian friends from Ratio Christie who was on here and he said, uh, why is your show called brute facts? What, what, what I don't get. And I was like, well, you get it then, you know, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a, like ironic or whatever. Hello? God's a brute fact. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> we're all PSR haters up in here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So real quick, it's conative states. Conative. Yeah. <laughs> I always, was, I mean, it's one of those words that, you know, you read a thousand times and then you're like, yeah. So tomato, I, tomato, conative, 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 conative. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw the show yeah. and I've heard it. I've heard it several different ways too so i had to look I it know. up so yeah uh, i was you know sure. i did look it up and there was different different things have different pronunciations of it so 
Oh, I wow. don't know. Yeah, oh. but but you might. I mean, I'm not saying you're. You might. Oh no, I'm usually one. wrong. I just. <laughs> I, I'm married and I have three daughters. I'm never right. <laughs> I didn't know you had three daughters. Wow. Yeah. Yes. 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 That's how I know God has a sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, there you go. So. I love it. So I love it. First things first. I got to know about basketball. We should talk about basketball. I always want to talk about basketball with people. And then they're like, okay, now let's move on to the real topics. And I'm like, maybe that should just be the real topic. (laughs) Basketball Um, is in the blood of this family. My oldest daughter played all the way through high school. My middle daughter, both of them started, you know, little rec leagues, little, little bitty girls. And uh, Mm. I grew up in Memphis, which is a basketball city. Absolutely. We played street ball. I didn't, the organized sports I played was football and things like that. But basketball was kind of like how we, our outlet, you know. We I love it. All just every afternoon, summer, spring, <laughs> weekends. That's all we did is play basketball. So that's so awesome. Did you yeah. play, uh, you played through school or? Yep. I played. So I played like, you know, all through high school. Although it's funny, I actually had a lot of injuries in high school. Um, so here's a random fact about me. I can't straighten my pinky. Um, I actually broke it playing volleyball, but nice. ended up having three surgeries on it. And um, thus, I missed most of my freshman year of basketball. And then I won't show you, but um, I have a nice big scar on my knee. So I tore my ACL my junior year Ooh. of a high school, actually skiing. So it's weird that neither of these injuries were actually because of basketball, um, but both uh. of them prevented me. So, so yeah, high school was, I mean, it was great. I loved it. I had a wonderful time. My senior year was amazing. Um, We like won two of these really big tournaments and it was really fun, but I also, yeah, really basically played two years plus a little bit because of injuries. So that was a bummer. Um, I've seen it happen to, you know, it was funny because my uh, oldest daughter had a couple of injuries playing basketball and talking to the doctor, he was just straightforward and blunt. He said, women just don't jump right. And I said, what? Oh. It's it's just the form of yeah. how most women naturally jump. And I was like, well, wouldn't that be part of fundamentals? So shouldn't they mm. be working on? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Well, first, I, I do think women are more likely to tear their ACLs than men, too. And I don't know all the biological reasons for that. But also um, women that play like center or forward, I think, are even more likely. So yes. I was I was pretty likely. Um, but I think, yeah. So really fun thing or like, I know, kind of a blessing, I, I, you know, I attribute this to to divine providence is um, I was actually, even though I missed basically two full seasons of basketball in high school, um, God kind of provided a way for me to play basketball in college. So that was really fun. Oh, so I actually wow. played it. Um, I played at Manhattan Christian College. So it was a super small school, um, definitely not even close to D1 or anything like that. But it was still just like a really, really fun kind of extracurricular. Um, I mean, it was more yeah. than extracurricular. We practiced every single day and did, you know, tons of intense workouts. And, you is know, that, it wasn't just this like intramural thing. It was, it was you know, intense, is, but yeah. it was good. Is that NAIA? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so we would play. Yeah. Yeah, we got a few of them. I'm in uh, Northwest Arkansas, and Mm. there's, you know, there's a lot of NAIA schools around here. And that's, you know, I had to, I had to be, I'm not a dream killer, but (laughs) I'm also a realist. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I had to let my daughters know the odds of playing Division One basketball is like, it's like hitting the lottery. 
You know, yeah, you, you have to be a freak athlete. You you have to be the best in your region, not the district, the region. Yeah. And I said, and to be honest with you, division two is kind of hard to get into. So mm. let's 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 try to go as far as you can, but yeah. keep it real. You can always play NAI basketball. You yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, transfer, get picked up or something. So yeah, it's yeah. uh I always wanted to, but I'm five seven. So, <laughs> now you I can be like the point guard that dribbles through people's legs, though. I well, don't know, that's I what like I was going to say. People have these like special talents that get overlooked in basketball. So <laughs> I I spend a lot of time working on dribbling, uh, mm. and I, I'm pretty good at it. And I had to school, you know, at forty. I had to school a few high school kids down there. They're like, oh, Love this it. short, yeah, this short old man's not going to do anything, and they were like. Wow, he's got moves. I, I love like, it. That's I awesome. Like, I was like, yeah, man, from Memphis. Come on. You got to know how to, you got to dribble. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, I have a lot of trouble guarding shorter people, um, especially if they can shoot, because then you really like, if they can shoot and dribble by you, and I'm kind of yeah. like a bigger, slow person, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of in a really tough position. So. Are um, you tall? I'm a, I'm right under six foot, so like oh, wow. five, 11 and a half ish. Yeah. Yeah. There. So, okay. Thanks. There goes my. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's. Well, it. I was just saying you you could probably <laughs> school me because you could just dribble right by me. <laughs> Taller, smarter. I mean, give me something. <laughs> no. No. So. Way better beard. <laughs> yeah, I do got like, a beard. That's, that's about the only thing beard. I got going. So, uh, so did yeah. uh did you grow up? religious christian in a christian family um how how did you yep no i absolutely did um my parents actually um worked for crew i don't know if you've heard of it it used to be called campus crusade for christ and then oh, yeah, yeah. years ago they shortened the name to crew um so my parents were actually in ministry um so yeah i absolutely oh, wow. grew up grew up christian um you know grew up going to church we normally went to kind of like non-denominational protestant churches um and that's kind of still where i would say that i land yeah. today as well um and yeah i was definitely i think i became a christian at a pretty young age but at the same time um i had every question in the book and then some uh so i was a very inquisitive kid i had tons of questions i was always asking my parents questions. And I remember I, I should go back and find this. And I've mentioned this to, I told Cam about this at least once. Um, like I wrote down, I, I bet I was in like, you know, maybe sixth or seventh grade. I don't remember how old I was, but I wrote down all of my questions um, in like a, in like a notebook. And I should go try to find that again and kind of see where I'm at with those. But I definitely remember some of them. Like I was like super confused about Jesus' two natures. Like how do we reconcile that? Yeah. Um, I was also really, I remember one thing I was kind of upset about was that I, I didn't feel like I could be a hundred percent certain that God existed or that Christianity was true. And that really bothered me. Um, I, you know, I'm sure there was a bunch of other questions. I don't remember. Yeah, it was a very long time ago, but I definitely was like that kid that was like always asking the questions, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was very inquisitive too, but really mm -hmm. ADHD too. So about time somebody would explain it to me, I didn't care anymore. Uh, so <laughs> you're on to the next, you're on to the next <laughs> yeah. question. Uh, yeah. We, we, we grew up in, you know, kind of a, uh, tough area, but it was, God wasn't really something that was foremost on my mind through my teenage mm -hmm. years. And it wasn't until I was a young adult that I really started, you know, 
questioning things and reality and things like that, which mm. is ultimately what led me to philosophy of religion. Uh, mm, so that's awesome. What made you decide to get into philosophy of religion? Yeah, good, great question. I mean, in some ways, similar to you, actually. So, um, so yeah, I you know went through high school, all that. I think I was, you know, I I, I wasn't going through serious periods of doubt in high school. Um, and in college, I was kind of in this interesting situation. So like I said, I played basketball at like a smaller Christian school. And then I also actually went to Kansas State University. They actually had this program where you could be enrolled in both schools. Um, and so it put me in kind of an interesting situation um, with respect to, well, I guess like, first of all, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to major in um, at Kansas State. I was doing Bible at the smaller school, but I was going around and kind of taking different classes. And um, I just remember like taking my first philosophy class and it was actually, I think it was moral and political philosophy or something like that. And I was like, and that's, so that's not even what I do, you know, <laughs> but I was just like, this is what I have been wanting to do my whole life. This is like, these are my people, you know, I just yeah. like resonated so much with like the way that they were like willing to question assumptions that other people weren't willing to and, and just really think things through and, you know, come up with counter examples. And I, I don't know, it just it really resonated with me like right away. And I think in some ways I was maybe like built to do philosophy. So yeah. I think that was kind of like one pillar. The other pillar that kind of made me want to go into philosophy was so I said like I was majoring in philosophy at Kansas State, but then also I was going to this smaller Christian school. And so the professors there were at least supposed to be Christian. Um, and I remember one of the professors who also, I'm sorry, it's like raining really hard. So if oh, there's like okay. really loud thundering, I apologize. Um, I thought you were hungry, but. Yeah, I'm starving. <laughs> no, I actually just ate. Um, <laughs> so one of the professors there, I think was one of the ones who was more philosophical and I think more willing to kind of intellectually engage with us. Um, I would come to him with questions because he was, yeah, just kind of the, the most natural person for me to talk to. And he would just like, tell me like, I'm seriously down in Christianity. And like, I have no idea what to say about the violence in the old Testament. And in fact, I think it's like, you know, maybe like a decisive objection and, da, da. and, and it was pretty earth shattering for me that this like Christian who I was looking up to sounded right. like they were basically deconverting. And then it's so it's interesting. I mean, you know how things happen, but he ended up um, like leaving the faith and quitting teaching there probably two years after I graduated. So wow. I, I think I could kind of see it coming, but you know, as like a, however old I was 19 or 20 year old, like that can be pretty faith shaking. And I went through a lot of doubt. I mean, not just because of him, but also just working through issues that, you know, I just was trying to find answers for. Yeah. Um, but that was a hard experience. And I think because of that, it really inspired me to want to be a professor that like, I mean, I, I want to encourage students to question things, but I also want to lead them into the truth and, uh, you know, be confident in, in Christianity and show them that they don't have to like, give it up in order to be rational, wow. you know? Um, so, so I do think that experience and just made me realize, I guess, both like the, the influence that professors can have on their students. And it's such a important informative time in people's lives. Um, and also the importance of having like solid Christian professors. Um, and so is that, and then combined with just this like love of philosophy and me being yeah. like, these are my people. So those two things That's kind of together was what made me want to go into philosophy.
Yeah, that, that's interesting because usually it's a story of people kind of like, you know, philosophies like this big monster with tentacles that like grabs people and just because if you'd have told me 15 years ago, I would be immersed in philosophy. I'd be like, you've lost your mind. You know, and now it's like, I can't get enough of it. And yeah, I love it. But the problem is there's so many different ways to go. And it's like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and people know so many different things. So you, you go from here to here to here to here. And I'm like, okay, I got to stop. I got to find something I like and focus on that. And that was epistemology. And yeah. you are a specialist in epistemology. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, I mean, it is, it's cool, but it's, and so I think in some ways good, in some ways bad, but things are very hyper-specialized in academia and really like, even within epistemology, I mean, you do kind of focus on epistemology, but a lot of people even focus on something even more specific, like evidentialism or like virtue ethics or formal, you know, and so it's just because there's so many papers being published so quickly, it's just really hard to keep up with everything. So in some oh, ways, yes. it's, it's good. But in some ways, it's kind of like, I remember as an undergrad, I was just interested in everything and not just philosophy either. I was interested in physics and psychology, and I just wanted to learn it all. And like, the more you get into it, the more you just kind of feel like it's impossible, you know? Yes. So. Yeah. I, I explain it to people, you know, who who's not into philosophy, you know, the vastness of the fields that you can take. I, and, and the way I explain it to them is I say, take a windshield that's been totally cracked, you know, mm-hmm. that's got all the thousands of little cracks in it and then find, or one that's shattered and then find one little crack there. And a philosopher will spend their entire career on that one little crack, you know, (laughs) and then we're standing back sitting in the driver's seat going, Oh my gosh, look at all these cracks, you know, (laughs) and uh, then like epistemology is like one car and you know, and then it's like, you know, and then there's like Uh, all these other cars, which are philosophy. And then this like, huge lot of cars that represent yeah so yeah it's all it's so much more specialized than you think <laughs> yes yeah. it's it, well it's crazy because you know you would think that epistemology as a field itself uh would just be a specialized field but there's mm-hmm. specialized epistemologies yeah. in epistemology and every you know and you have so many different people that uh you know i listen to matter of fact i'm going through swinburne's book now Uh, about um, justification or epistemic justification, Mm. because I like the idea of, you know, being able, not having the internalist and externalist kind of divide because Mm. uh, it seems like, like kind of like, you know, theories of truth. It's like, there's not one that's the right answer. It's like, they all seem to have good parts that we can draw from mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. a bigger picture. So I kind of like, I like to put things together. I don't like yeah. to yeah, yeah, yeah. spot and go right through it. And uh, I had actually come to realize that I was more or less a Bayes- uh, Bayesian epistemologist myself. I mean, everything yeah. that I basically put my uh, comfort and trust in was statistics. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I learned about, you know, evidentialism and, you know, uh, prob- uh, probability or probabilism and epistemology, I was like, hey, that's my thing right there. So I love it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to a kind of pluralism and epistemology as well. Um, I definitely think, I mean, you can kind of narrow in on specific epistemological questions that maybe. Well, the answer wouldn't be everything, but I do think this, 
Um, like just take internalism and externalism, for example. So, you know, a belief's being supported by evidence versus a belief's being formed by a reliable process. Um, you know, we can debate like, does one of those play a special role in knowledge or does one of those map on to justification? You know, that we can debate that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to say there's something epistemically valuable about both things. You know, I don't want to say like just because I'm an evidentialist that being reliably formed just doesn't matter or vice versa. You know, so I think in that sense, um, we can let a thousand flowers bloom and say these are all, you know, and then proper functionalism and uh, virtue epistemology and all these different, you know, I'm like, sure, those are all different kinds of epistemic values that are describing uh, good things to have epistemically. And so just because, and even just because we're like an evidentialist about justification doesn't mean we say the reliableists are doing pointless work or something. Right. And that was, that's where I kind of found myself because I was very drawn to uh, planning as reformed epistemology. Mm-hmm. And since it's divine autotis and, uh, you know, the knowledge of God being a properly basic belief. And because I was real sympathetic to, you know, I explain to people all the time that even if I wasn't a Christian, I would still be a deist, at mm. least because I've always just found myself with the belief that there's a God. And mm. so I, I'm re- I sympathize with planning of that uh, with the reformed epistemology. But at the same time, you know, I think, you know, uh, Tim McGrew and others, you know, evidentialists are. I listen to them and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and ironically, I actually have Dr. Tyler McNabb coming on next, oh, uh, who's been working on, you know, proper functionalism. And mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of torn between the two, you know, uh, but that's why I think I like Swinburne's, you know, the, uh, what is it? Synchronic and diachronic. Is that what it is? Distinction that he makes. Uh, But yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I was just going to say, like, you don't have to pick between them. (laughs) I mean, you don't like, like, of course, like, so Planaga developed reformed epistemology in his proper functionalist framework. And that makes sense. Like that was his big thing that he had written on for epistemology in general. And so he wants his view of, how belief in God is rational to fit within that, you know? So sure, like it does fit together nicely, but what is the thesis of reformed epistemology, right? It's the idea that a belief in God can be rational without being based on an argument. So there's nothing about that that requires externalism or even proper functionalism. I mean, really, I think that bare thesis is consistent with almost any sort of view of justification you might have, whether internalist or externalist. And the internalist is just going to say it's not based on an argument, but it's based on like some other internally accessible state, like a seeming or a perception or, you know, whatever the the story that they give for how other non-argumentative beliefs are justified. So, so yeah, I think that the basic thesis of reformed epistemology uh, is one that like, most epistemologists can accept. Uh, you start adding in all this stuff about proper functionalism, and that's yeah, that's going to get kind of controversial. Right. But yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's where the uh, the screech with the brakes happen. We're going to mm-hmm. stop right there. So yeah, it's uh, because I was I was so sympathetic also to you know when I was a reformed epistemologist with. Um, phenomenal conservative conservatism you know it just what seems to me is the most 
logical mm-hmm. or uh, uh, the word I was looking for plausible, you know, the, pl- the most plausible uh, route I should take as far as my belief. But I want to know, how did you get into Pascal's wager? Because that's <laughs> one that so many people just fly right past and they're like, Oh, Pascal's wager, you know? Oh, it's, yeah. but the way that you present it and in, in, in the academic works, it's far more nuanced than what a lot of people on the internet, you know, yep. believe. Yep. Uh, so, so what, how did you get interested in that? Yeah. So it's funny that actually kind of traces back to my undergrad as well. Um, but at my undergrad, so I said I went to two, but Kansas State University, the the largest school that I went to, a lot of the people there were extremely into decision theory. It was like a big, like there was just a lot of decision theorists there. They really liked kind of formal methods and philosophy. And so, you know, like it wasn't when I was there, but after I left decision theory actually became like a required class. But either way, people were like always talking about it. And it was something that came up in class quite a bit. And so I think me and a few friends of mine, we kind of had this like basic knowledge of decision theory and we thought it was kind of interesting and cool. Um, And then we were all like Christians and interested in philosophy of religion. And so I think like one reason we kind of got interested in it is because it kind of fit at the intersection of those two areas of interest. Um, But then the second reason, and I think the reason I think I remained interested in it is because I actually think it's a really underrated argument. Um, I think a lot of people hear it, give some, you know, hand wavy version of the mini gods objection and say, so the game's over. It's a stupid argument. I'm done. (laughs) And in my opinion, I mean, it, insofar as it's classified as a theistic argument, I know it's not an argument that's meant to show that God exists, but when you put it with the other theistic arguments, I think it's just as good, if not better than quite a few of them. Um, So, and, and, and here's another reason that I think it's really interesting Um, The other theistic arguments, so cosmological, ontological, fine-tuning, right? Those kinds of arguments, their conclusion is God exists. So it's just this claim about the world. And it is a strong claim. It's an interesting claim. It's a claim people disagree about. But the conclusion of Pascal's wager is like, you should make a commitment to God, whether that's like belief or action or converting or whatever. And so it's not just this like claim about the world, in some ways, it's a stronger claim because it's like telling you that you need to do something, you know. Right. Um, and I, I, I kind of suspect that this is one reason why, especially people not so inclined to religion, um, like hate it. <laughs> it gets yeah. a lot of flack on the internet. Right. Um, but I think it's like important to note that, like, yes, it is a weaker argument in some senses, but in another sense, in an important sense, it's actually like a pretty strong claim because it's telling right. you like what you what you ought to do, you know. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I think you do a fantastic job of highlighting one of the most important nuances of it. And that is, it's not an argument for somebody who has very uh, small belief that there's a deity or something like that. It's, it, it's more about someone who's, who's more inclined to believe that there mm. may be a God or, you know, if if you're more inclined, you know, whether that be some small probability or some mid probability, because the way that I've always understood Pascal's wager was more of uh, if it's as, you know, all things being equal, 
you should, mm-hmm. you know, it follow God for the uh, benefit more or less, or uh, I guess, well, you could, you can explain it a little better than I can. It's, mm-hmm. I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time on Pascal's wager because, you know, I was con- uh, influenced so much by different internet chatter about it. Uh, and when I started reading your work and, and listening to you present it, I was like, that's a pretty good way of presenting it, you know? So. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the argument. And I also think a lot of people, what they do is they consider like a really, really basic, um, almost naive version of it. And then they give an objection to that. And then they think the game's over, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think like, there's a lot of different ways you could frame the wager. So one way, like kind of the way you were just sort of suggesting is like, as long as your credence that God exists is non-zero, you should commit to God. And I think that there are interesting arguments for that conclusion. But one way that I think you can get out of um, certain objections to the wager is by making that that standard a little higher. So maybe you need to, um, you know, at least, so like Mike Rhoda's version says it needs to be a 0.5 credence. You need to think it's at least 50% likely that God exists. Um, you know, I think we can go a little lower than that, right? So maybe 30 or 20 or whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm open to the idea that maybe infinities mean that like quite a few people should commit to God that aren't, right? But you can kind of move that threshold up and down. And I still I still think get a really interesting argument, which means like quite a few people should should commit to God, even if it's greater than just non-zero or whatever um so so yeah i totally agree yeah and it was you know that when i'd first i'd seen you on um capturing christianity when i had first seen the you present uh about that and about pascal's wager but what really uh piqued my attention was not only do you take on pascal's wager you take on the topic of faith (laughs) <laughs> and that is one that to me seems to be so misunderstood by so many lay people. You know, you go from extremes of, you know, there's there's no kind of uh, it's only trust and that's the only epistemic value uh, to the other extreme that it's an epistemic position itself. And, you know, we can have knowledge independent of reason at all, you know, this fideistic type of faith. Uh, But I think it it really ties into Pascal's wager, uh, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of cool how you tackle both topics, which are very hard topics themselves together. So, (laughs) yeah. So what led you to, to want it? Was it Pascal's wager that led you to the faith part of it or the other way around or? That's a good question. I mean, I think I actually kind of became interested in both of them kind of independently. Like I definitely remember. So I like, you know, obviously I have this very distinct story of like how Pascal's wager kind of came up from things I was interested in undergrad. But I also remember like we had this like, philosophical theology discussion group and I remember like in that group this was in undergrad also kind of sitting there and just being like faith supposed to go beyond the evidence but like could that be rational like what is faith and I just remember like kind of puzzling over it and and thinking it was like a really interesting question but being really confused and I mean not that I like have it all figured out now or anything but I think it really 
made me think like, this is an important question and something I want to think more about. Um, and then I sort of like, you know, after many years of sort of being separately interested in these two topics, I realized like the, both of these topics, they're really at their core about what makes a religious commitment rational. And I think kind of at the core, that's what I'm interested in. And then even more specifically, I think what they show is that religious commitment can be rational, even if you have evidence that's far from perfect. <laughs> um, so it's not just saying like, you could have a 0.99 credence, think it's 99% likely that God exists and still be rational. It's like, no, you could be rational even in the face of really serious doubt, yeah. um, either making a religious commitment or continuing in a religious commitment. And I think that's that's really important and significant because, I mean, for a couple of reasons, but like, I think it allows Christians to take challenges to Christianity seriously. So we can really take the problem of evil seriously and we can take the problem of divine hiddenness seriously and not just stick our head in the sand and kind of ignore these challenges to the faith but we can say look i know that i'm rational to continue in this uh commitment to god even if my confidence goes down some because of these arguments and so i think that's that's super important and and i think too it just kind of gives it, it gives me a freedom to say god wants my commitment God wants a commitment. God doesn't want 100% certainty all the time. I mean, I don't even think that's possible, honestly. But yeah. um, but I think it's really easy to say, I need to be certain. I need to be 100% certain yeah. all the time, and I can't ever have any ounce of doubt. But it's like, look, like I just love this story. I think it's in Mark, where the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief, you know? It's like, uh, he wants to believe. He's He has some level of belief. But he knows he has unbelief too. And Jesus like blesses his faith. And I think it's totally legitimate to be in that situation. And I even think like I've heard Christians say things like doubting is a sin. And I just think that kind of thing is not, it's not helpful because it makes us ignore the evidence and be really, really scared uh, to look at the arguments for the other side. So I actually think contra what some people say that like this understanding of faith in Pascal's wager actually can leave us more open to uh, looking at counter evidence rather than less. See, that's why that, that this is this is it right here because <laughs> the because I tell people all the time. As far as I, I'm skeptical by nature, mm. you know, for me to contextualize uh, a resurrection and the miracles, I have to remind myself that if God exists and He created the universe. How hard's a resurrection? How hard is <laughs> right. miracles? You know, because Absolutely. yeah, and uh, I when I talk about certainty, I tell people all the time. I say, certainty to me is I am certain that I exist. That's as far as certain certainty goes. If you want to call that certainty, you mm -hmm. know, everything else totally. to me is, you know, I have a, a level of confidence in my belief. And I think something that, that, that's similar to what you were talking about is, uh, I believe it was, I think it was Tim McGrew, I'm not sure, but on the Bayesian analysis of the resurrection had made a very important point, uh, and it may have been Swinburne, I'm not sure which one it was. We don't need a 0.5 confidence or better. We, if the hypothesis has a higher probability than the alter the alternative, or competing hypothesis, or that the resurrection didn't happen given the facts, that's the more plausible position to take. 
And I think that's, you know, when people get into probability and uh, basing their, you know, epistemology on uh, uh, probability, sometimes they think that we have to have this 0.5 or greater for everything. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, if we have these competing hypotheses, even the null hypothesis, and given the facts, it's a 0.3 and the rest of them are 0.1. That's the more probable position and plausible position to take. So yep. it, it, it that's uh, that's why I love the way that you lay out talking about faith and having these, uh, you know, different epistemic positions that we can hold. Uh, one thing that I didn't get completely clear was where exactly you stand on fideism. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so fideism is, I guess, kind of the conjunction of two claims. Um, the first is that faith is inherently irrational or absurd. But the second, which makes it kind of interesting, is that it's still a good thing to have and it's still something we should pursue. So some philosophers attribute this view to Kierkegaard, for example, although Kierkegaard scholars obviously debate about whether that's correct. So we don't need to take a stand on that here. Yeah, I, 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 I was that, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always thought he was a fideus. And then when I started really reading the literature, it's debated whether he was or not. But go ahead. I'm sorry. And yeah. You off. <laughs> no. And then like there's people that wrote under his name that weren't actually him writing. And so you have to there's a lot of historical things you have to keep in mind when you're actually wow. trying to figure out who had what view that. Honestly, I, I do kind of stay away from a lot of those debates. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really know. interested. Yeah, I'm really interested in the ideas. I'm not saying those aren't valuable, but I just I am more interested in. Yeah, the ideas. So. So the idea is that faith is valuable in some way because it is irrational or because it is absurd. Um, And I think that's very distinct, importantly distinct, and I'll give an example in a second, from the view that I give, which is that faith can be rational but go beyond the evidence in some way. So it's not saying that faith can go beyond the evidence to any point. And it's not saying that faith that something is true is consistent with believing having total and complete proof that that thing is false, right? So here's an example. Um, And I gave this in a recent paper that I wrote, actually. It's called Faith and Reason. Um, So it's a basketball example, so that's fun. So let's say your team is playing in the playoff game, and if you win this playoff game, you're going to go to the championship, okay? And so I have faith you're going to win your game. I've been a big fan for a while. I love watching your team. Um, Okay, then let's say... (laughs) Uh, I go to your game and you get completely crushed by 40 points. It's a total upheaval. It's like very depressing, very sad, right? Um, and so the most people's response would be like, I'm really sorry you lost your game. That's a bummer. You know, hopefully next year, whatever. Let's say, nah, let's say I say, <laughs> I have faith you're going to go to the championship, even though, you, you know, I have this evidence you lost by 40 points, but I'm just going to ignore that. And I'm just going to come to the championship all decked out in body paint, ready to cheer for your team. Let's go. Let's go. You know, and I'm like super hype and like ready to cheer you on at the championship. Okay. I mean, I'm in a situation where I pretty much have decisive proof. You're not going to the championship. Um, And, and what I'm doing is I'm ignoring that evidence, even though it's like decisive evidence and choosing to act as if you're going to the championship anyway. Okay. 
What you're you're not gonna say, Liz? Oh my goodness, what amazing faith you have! I'm so happy you have faith. You're gonna say you're delusional. We lost by 40 points. Like I'm sorry, but you really have to like snap into reality, you know. Yeah. Um, and 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 this is my my worry about fideism. So if you know if it was a different situation, if it's before the game and one of your starting five players get injured, right? I'm gonna be a little bit less confident you'll win the game. Um, but I can still have faith you'll win. Um, it's not like my evidence is like decisively showing that you lost the game. Um, and, and that's what it means for faith to go beyond the evidence. Then when I show up to the championship game decked out in body paint after seeing you lose by 40 points, that's w- more what I would call fideism. And and yeah, so I just, I don't think that faith is is rational because it's absurd. And I think both Christians and atheists uh, should not be giving that definition of faith. Um, and I think if you're a Christian and an atheist tries to tell you that that's what faith is, then the response is to say, okay, like, we don't need to be debating about who gets to use the word faith. You can have that word. And yeah. I just don't have faith. <laughs> I have something else. I have schmaith or, you know, you can make a different <laughs> word for it. But right. I'm not I'm not believing things because they're absurd. I'm not believing things that I know are false. Um, I'm, I'm keeping my commitments. My commitments are resilient in light of some level of counter evidence, but not in light of any amount of counter evidence. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, one of my concerns with fideism is epistemic laziness Mm. um just from personal experience so many people avoid the hard questions Mm -hmm. and just say faith we take it on faith you know and i'm like what does that mean i mean are are you talking about hebrews the homolytic preaching book where they're you know Mm -hmm typically loose with their words like the pastor is you know it's what do you mean by we just take it on faith and i I know to an extent what a lot of them mean but i think that it it just so many people not to mention there's a lot of it seems to be a lot of anti-intellectualism is kind of creeping into the uh real conservative evangelical churches and you know I can't tell you how many times on TikTok I've heard, well, you listen to man's wisdom or man's Mm. philosophy. And I'm like, what are you using to figure out how the world works? I mean, it's, and it it seems to be breeding this culture of, and that just may be my experience, but it seems to be breeding this culture of people who just appeal to faith, you know, and I don't even know if they know what they mean by faith. So, No, I totally agree. And I think it's one reason. I mean, I love things like what you're doing and, you know, Cam and Jordan and others because there's so much going on in Christian philosophy. And there is serious philosophers publishing in top journals that are dedicated and real Christians. But I think people just don't even know about it. And I mean, I get it. Like a lot of people aren't going to go and read philosophy journals. That's understandable. But that's why I think, you know, things like this are so valuable. Like they can go on YouTube and hopefully hear a more understandable version of some of these arguments and realize like, I don't have to just say I have faith and ignore the evidence because like, it's not that the evidence is just all pointing to atheism. There's all these awesome arguments um, defending theism and defending Christianity that people right. have been giving. So I think that's another thing too, is like people miss 
it's kind of like the God's not dead thing where it's like, I feel like some Christians just associate philosophy with atheism. And yeah. I, I would like to change that conception if possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you all the way on that. And that's, you know, like I was talking about with this show is it's about getting to know the people behind the work and things like that, but it's, I'm, I'm a layman's layman, you know? So mm -hmm. eventually I'd like to get to the point where I can produce different, you know, series on these harder philosophical concepts in a way that, you know, layman like me can really understand it, which is something that's going to come with time because, you know, when I talk to people now, they're like, hey, can you like put the philosophy hat over there? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm really trying here. I just, Same. you know. And, <laughs> You know how yeah. it is. You you get in these groups and you you talk a certain way all the time. You got to be very careful about what you say. Mm -hmm. You know, your words have to be careful. You've got to be concise, precise, mm -hmm. you know, not make claims, be modest and all of this. So when somebody asks you, well, well how do you know that? My brain goes, Zzz. it's like, well, wait a minute. Okay. What do you mean by how do you know? Just how do you know that? And they get so frustrated. And I'm like, yeah you don't know what you're asking. Yeah. Uh, I'm just <laughs> We can spend all day talking about what knowing is. No, so. I know. I know. I definitely encountered similar things. Even sometimes my family members are like, okay, enough of the philosophy. Let's like talk it's... about sports again. And I like sports too, you know, Me so too. I'm, you know, I'm not like against talking about sports, but yeah. Um, some people, I mean, I feel like, you know, maybe not, maybe this isn't true for everyone, but I think for a lot of people, either you just like find philosophy and you love it, or you're just kind of like not into it, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of people seem to fall in one of those two camps. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a love or hate thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you have people like Graham Oppie, uh, who, he was, I had him on my show and he was like, ah, oh, there's a way to pay for my degree. And I was like, okay, cool. And he just huh. kind of fell into philosophy. And I was like, well, I got, I don't have a degree, but it's kind of what happened with me was, you know, like I was saying, it's got the tentacles and it just grabs you and sucks yep. you in. Yeah. If you're an analytical <laughs> person, uh, Western analytical philosophy will just grab you because you just, you got to know why you got to know why, you know, I know. Uh, I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, now for the hard questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is the last thing you listened to on your iPod or iPod, iPhone? Man, I'm so old. <laughs> on my iPhone. That's a great question. You know, I'm super into podcasts, but oh. I actually listen to a lot of different kinds of podcasts. So I do listen to some like philosophy, theology stuff. Um, I love the Bible Project. I don't know if you've listened to that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's so it's so good. Um, I really just enjoy the. It just helps me understand the Bible a lot better. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, I would love to have more formal training in Bible, but I just don't. And so it's really helpful to have something I can just like listen to on a morning walk or while I'm working out to kind of help me learn more about that. Um, but I guess there's like two other types of podcasts that I listen to quite a bit that are a little different. So I'm super interested in like, um, fitness and I really like weightlifting and trying to like eat healthy, at least to an extent. So I listen to some like, um, working out and, and fitness podcasts. Um, and then also 
my husband um, is into real estate investing. And so I've actually had a lot of fun oh. sort of learning about that. And so I listened to the Bigger Pockets podcast is one um, that's kind of about real estate investing and just kind of learning like what he's doing. And um, it, it can get really complicated really quickly, but I, I actually kind of enjoy it. I'm kind of a math nerd. Um, so I actually yeah. considered majoring in math for a while. So, oh, wow. so that's another um, another I think, thing I listen to quite a bit. <laughs> I think you're too way too outgoing to be to have a math PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it just reminds me uh, there was this this lady on YouTube who broke down uh, Bayesian reasoning so well, and she was mm. comparing uh, you know the probability of this outgoing person with a PhD you meet being a math PhD or being a business PhD. And yep. she had compared yep. how the business PhDs, uh, how many are given out far outweigh how many math PhDs they are. But the fact he was so shy and most math PhDs are shy, you know, and, and, and kind of like hermit crabs, uh, the, basically just worked it all out and showed that it was far more likely that it was, even though he was shy and a hermit, he was more than likely a business guy so yeah uh, that's a i love puzzles like that um yeah the, the base rate fallacy i think is what that yes. one is illustrating yes that's exactly but, what is the bit yes yeah i remember i mean i i actually another thing i listened to was daniel kahneman's book called thinking fast and slow mm. and like that book was just like my mind was so blown by that book um and i think like some of the studies that he talks about in that book um, we're not replicated. So, you know, don't take it all as gospel, but it's a super interesting book. And they talk about the base rate fallacy and just a lot of other yeah. um, different like studies and, and fallacies that people tend to make. And I think it it really changed the way that I think. So I, I really yeah. recommend that book to people because um, it is super interesting. Like oh, what kind of evidence we like you know, grab onto and what kind of evidence we just don't pay attention to at all. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. When I learned about the base rate fallacy, I was like, Man, I guess I do do that a lot. I totally yeah. forget. Yeah, I don't even think we about. all do. Yeah, it's we like, all do. Yeah. wait a minute, you know. And it's funny because uh, all these guys that I'm friends with, when I first I met a lot of them because I got on TikTok just to watch videos and laugh, and then I saw a bunch of bullies, fundamentalists, and on both sides, atheist fundamentalists and fundamentalist Christians bullying each other, and their reasoning was horrible. And I didn't want to mm -hmm. get into it, but I just got sick of seeing all the bullying. So I just started, you know, they were like, are you familiar with what pigeon chess is? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't have TikTok. I, I, no, 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 no. I, uh... I mean, the term, the term pigeon <laughs> oh, chess. So No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. So basically. Google it. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, pigeon chess is where you can win your chess game, but the pigeon's just going to strut all over the board, crapping everywhere and knocking the pieces over. And that's what it was. Uh, it was like pigeon chess, you know? So finally, and that's the clean version. Um, so mm. I just started calling out fallacies and I'm like, that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. Mm. And I eventually became known as the fallacy guys. And I got to play. Into <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, so I actually do a fallacy a day on TikTok now. <laughs> so, Oh, that's uh, kind of cool. I should check out yeah. your TikTok. Is it Eddie Kroom? Uh, it is rational Christian. Rational. Okay, cool. Yeah. For a long time, um, it was not a real Christian because I kept getting told I wasn't a real Christian. <laughs> because I was a rational Christian. So, uh, uh yeah, it's, uh, 
uh, it's pretty interesting. It's fun. But I was thinking about that because when I found, you know, about the base rate thing, I was like, well, look, there's another fallacy I've been committing quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. and I'm real open and honest. I tell them, you know, everybody every day commits fallacies, even people that know what fallacies are fallacies. We catch ourselves, you know, with that. And sometimes we don't. Uh, we get heated into debate and argument or something. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. I hope they didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's it, it's important, especially when you're trying to make a really important decision and you really need to think through something. Having these tools and being able to recognize like when what you're like the evidence that you're thinking about is actually way less relevant than some other bit of evidence um, or even like knowing the basics of decision theory is like super helpful. I've used that to like decide whether to buy yeah. car insurance and stuff. So people, right. you know, say like, oh, philosophy is pointless, but it totally isn't. I mean, no, some of this is psychology, of course, but Absolutely. I think like a lot of these tools can actually be super helpful for just like thinking through decisions and um, yeah, just like striving to be more rational, which is a good goal right. we should all have. And I think, yeah, with it seems the the longer that I'm in philosophy, it's it's like philosophy and psychology just has this huge overlap, you know, because, mm. you know, we have our epistemic positions and then psychological positions towards our epistemic positions or, you know, dispositions and things. But I glossed over the fitness thing on purpose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I have been uh, huge into fitness for years and um almost you know nerds into fitness and she's you know she's sick and not able to do a lot of what she used to do mm, and I yeah, I appreciate that we uh I had to have carpal tunnel surgery on both of my hands so I mm. haven't been able to I hate I hate cardio weightlifting <laughs> yeah. I, can, I can weight lift for days but so every time I go to the ortho I'm like is it time yet <laughs> and he's just scowling at me and I'm like, because I'm one of those guys that I can't do just a good diet and not work out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's got to go hand in hand. So I can't motivate myself to do the diet right unless I'm working out. And it, so it's all just gone to crap. You know, and yeah. <laughs> oh, we're so far from perfect either. I mean, we, yeah, <laughs> we're like trying to not eat sugar. And then we're like, should today be a cheat day? And we're like, I guess so. And then the next day is a cheat day. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, but I, yeah, it's hard. I mean, injuries have been hot. Like, injuries yes. are really hard. Um, I had like plantar fasciitis for almost oh, a year. That is so painful. That basically, yeah, just like prevented me from really running or playing basketball or doing anything cardio ish. And I mean, I'm with you though. I, I really like weightlifting and I could yeah. still do a lot of that. So that was nice. But yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's like, that's, that's such a big bummer. And <laughs> in know, some ways, a... like, and so, I mean, basically what we were talking about earlier with me, like getting injured, especially in high school so much, like I've been there, I've, I've felt that heartbreak and it, it really sucks. So. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I just, I just try to focus on, on, on flexing my, this muscle, my brain. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I've loved, like one thing I've heard is like, if you can't work out your body, work out your mind. And if you can't work out your mind, work out your body, you know? So I think it's, it's nice that we have both, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to wear my mind out fast. So, you know, (laughs) later on I can just be live blissfully and just forget. Uh, So what's your favorite dessert? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, 
Hmm. The first thing that came to mind is cheesecake. I'm a oh big cheesecake God. fan, Gross. but I don't know. Is that my favorite? I mean, I love yes, cookie dough your, also. No, no that's your no, favorite. Cheesecake. Cookie dough yeah. cheesecake. <laughs> I mean, Ooh, I haven't had that. that uh, my good. friend Jake actually from grad school made it once and it was amazing. So yeah, uh, I love cheesecake and I love cookie dough. Oh, dude, so somewhere in the freak. in there. <laughs> Every year, my wife gets me cheesecake for my birthday because oh. I love cheesecake. Yeah, I think one of the the best. Che- I'm a plain cheesecake guy, like a mm. thick cheesecake, not the Jello in the middle cheesecake. Uh, yeah. But I had a tiramisu cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Ooh, that oh, really good. it was phenomenal. Absolutely That's awesome. Was. And I'm not just um, saying that because my wife is Italian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So you said yeah. you, I, I saw in your bio that you like to travel. What's your favorite place to go to? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think I would have to say Asia. I mean, I know that's really general. Wow. But I am really into Asian food, like really into Asian food. Uh, and and I like to try to make it at home, although, you know, that only goes so far. <laughs> um, yes. And so I've been to, yeah, like China, Thailand, a few other places in Asia. And um, the food is just phenomenal i also just think it's beautiful and the people wow. are great and i love the culture it's just like a it's a different kind of culture um i mean europe is too but asia is different in a different way that's <laughs> not very descriptive but i yeah. i've just loved every single time i've been to asia and uh, my husband and i were actually going to be going on a cruise through southeast asia last summer and then of course that didn't happen um but i'm still hoping we can do it someday i yeah really want to visit I have a world map, but like all these, like all the little tiny countries, uh, kind of yeah. in between like Australia and China, there's like, I feel like there's so many like amazing beaches and like so much food and yeah. So, so that's kind of my, my dream. That's phenomenal. You've already got to travel to Asia and I'm jealous. I haven't been to Asia. I haven't been across the pond. Uh, mm. yeah, I've, uh, Costa Rica a few times, Canada, Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, I actually so for Hawaii um, it's kind of funny but when you're because I I did a postdoc in Australia so I was going back and forth between the US and Australia a few times and Hawaii is actually kind of right in the middle and so I ended up um, having a couple flights where I actually had a layover in Hawaii and then one one or two times my layover was really long so I ended up just like going to the beach and kind of like swimming and then one time I just in my swimsuit like took a shower in an outdoor shower it was actually so refreshing and great um but it like made me want to actually really go to Hawaii and like stay there for a while so Uh, badly because it seems so amazing yeah well my wife loved it I was there for work um (laughs) she got to spend most of the week on Waikiki Beach and then I get back I was working at uh Pearl Harbor Naval Base there and cool um, yeah it was pretty neat and she, you know, I come back one afternoon. She's like, I got to watch some film for Hawaii Five-0. And I was like, yay. I got to see the inside of a data center all day. Yay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Not quite the reason yeah, you want to yeah. go to Hawaii. <laughs> but it was cool. I, I did get a couple yeah. of days to hang out and uh, enjoy it. So it's pretty sweet. Yeah. I like it. So. I mean, that's one like really nice thing about being an academic um, when you're not in a pandemic, of course, is that yeah. you can give talks like 
to in a bunch of different places. And as long as it's kind of some kind of work purpose, you can usually have your institution help pay for it or even totally pay for it. So um, in grad school, I, I basically just tried to go to a bunch of conferences and then some of them uh, was lucky enough were in really cool countries that I, I got to go to. So it, it's, it's kind of nice. This job kind of uh, feeds my love for travel and lets me travel a lot, which is really great. So I got one last question for you. And you, right. can, o- you can only pick one. One. Oh, no. <laughs> Favorite philosopher. Ooh, I can only pick one. It can be contemporary or classic. <sighs> yeah, this is hard. Only picking one is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's I mean, why I said one. Okay, give me, give me I'm three. Gonna, three. Okay, well, okay, yeah. Okay, so I'll pick one and then add to it. Okay, okay. so... The person I was going to say is um, William James, actually. William and James. I think he's he's rated, but a little underrated. Yeah. yeah. So William James, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people would think I would say Pascal, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah Pascal. Um, no. and, and, and I do like Pascal, but I think William James gave a version of Pascal's wager, but um, that was like nuanced in a lot of really cool ways that I really like. So okay. he... Um, you know, he kind of couches it in this epistemic permissivist framework, which is what I really like. He talks a lot about like self-fulfilling beliefs. So, you know, like believing you'll win your game gives you like energy and zeal and confidence that makes it more likely you'll win your game. I think those are super interesting. Um, And so he's kind of like Pascal plus some stuff. Uh, But there's things I really like about Pascal's wager, uh, maybe even apart from like stuff that James says. But I just think, I think William James had a lot of really cool stuff to add to both epistemology and philosophy of religion. And I feel like I, I kind of just agree with him on a lot of stuff. So if I had to pick like my number one favorite, it would probably be William James. Um, have to look at some of his work. Yeah. The will to believe is definitely the big thing I would um, recommend All checking right. out. And he's not super hard to read either. So uh, I like him a lot. Um, another, another person I'm a big fan of is Lara Bushak. She's a contemporary philosopher who works on faith um, and like formal epistemology stuff. And she's really awesome. And I really like her work and a lot of her work kind of inspired me. So um, she's definitely someone I would put on that list as well. Cool. That's why I ask these questions because I'm getting (laughs) people that more and more philosophers that uh, I haven't read about. There's just so many out there. Uh, There is so many. I purposely tried to pick you know, maybe a lot of people would say like Plantinger or Swinburne or something. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I tried so to pick cliche. people that <laughs> maybe aren't said as often. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. That well, that's kind of what I was looking for. So it's you know when I ask the questions, I, I'm I'm looking at uh, one. I like to know you know what who who kind of inspires people, and at the same time, it's uh, you know more people to look into myself. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's just not enough there. I got to go looking for more philosophers to read, you know, so. (laughs) (laughs) Always, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's not enough. We got to find more. (laughs) Not in philosophy. (laughs) Well, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for coming on our little low show. Absolutely. Um, I have had a great time. Uh, I have learned a lot. Uh, like I said, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I am honored that you came on here and spent your time with us. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Um, and it's fun to like talk about some more personal stuff. I don't know. I feel like yeah. you have one. Some people have one or two questions at the beginning, but it's kind of nice to just chat and and you know we talked philosophy, obviously, but right. you know get to know you uh, on a more personal level as well. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Cause I'm so cool. Everybody wants to get to know. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. My, my, I can hear my 17 year old daughter in there. Oh my God. He's such a nerd. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dads were put here to embarrass daughters. That's they learned. I'm pretty sure quick. my dad has said that exact phrase like multiple times. So <laughs> yes. they learned real quick. Do not tell me in public that there's a cute guy because oh. it's, oh, uh, no. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, it's like, oh, who, that one? That guy's cute? You know, and they're just like, oh, my God, I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I thought I wanted boys, but no, nah, I'm glad I got girls. So. Oh, I love it. I love <laughs> We've it. We've had so much fun. <laughs> well, I would love to have you back sometime. Uh, I know you've got a lot going on, and we'll give you a little break. Uh, so, <laughs> No, I'll that'd keep- be great. We should do this again. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love, I mean, I love the work of the different academics that we have, but I enjoy so much getting to know the people, the minds behind, you know, and, and who kind of humanizing, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, because you just see names and you see work and you're like, man, they're so brilliant. And then mm-hmm. you meet them and they're like, uh, they're dorky like me. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Total dork. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm happy to know that you're into fitness and basketball because that's not something you find amongst a lot of philosophers, you know, and I love basketball. Yeah. So. I love it. I love it. If you, if you end up coming to the conference this summer, the Caption Christianity conference, we, some of us might play basketball. So you should join if you, if you can. All right, let's do it. (laughs) You're going to see these little short legs and the dribbling. You're going to dribble right through my legs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm going to pop you out of here and see everybody out. Um, if you got to go, Sounds that's good. cool. If not, I'll holler at you in the backstage. Sounds good. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. There you go. Dr. Liz Jackson. Uh, I will get the description updated with her YouTube channel, some of her papers. She has some phenomenal papers. Um some more information about her and then the regular links that are there. And as usual, I want to thank uh, Pasta Mike with Normalizing Atheism for all of the logos, artwork, video editing. He has done all of it for me. He's phenomenal. Check him out over at Normalizing Atheism on YouTube. He's got a new Facebook group of Normalizing Atheism and Uh, Tell him I sent you and he'll give you a special thumbs up. That's for sure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I've had a great time talking to Dr. Liz Jackson. And we have on the next show, we're going to have Dr. Tyler McNabb. So we get to we go from an evidentialist to a proper functionalist. And we'll see if he has some mean words to say, but I doubt it. He's a cool guy. Thank you, everybody. Have a good evening.